Hey everybody, we'd like to welcome you to the Ewok Podcast. We hope your day's going good. This is the official podcast of the East Wilton Union Church located in Wilton, Maine. And today we're going to hear a message from Robbie Locke, our senior pastor. We hope that it's a blessing to your life and that God uses it to help you walk closer with him. And our prayer is that you would grow closer to him in truth and in love. Well, without further ado, here's Pastor Robbie. Turn in your Bibles, please, with me to Colossians, and we are in chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And you'll remember that verses 15 to 29 are the doctrinal section of this epistle. And the key phrase is in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, the last part of the verse, that in all things he, referring to Jesus, that he might have the preeminence. He's talking in the context about the creation. He's talking about the church. And Jesus Christ is to be preeminent in everything. Now, we have studied four things thus far in the last two weeks. Christ's preeminence is revealed in several different ways. First of all, he is the image of God in verse 15. That means that Jesus Christ came and was the exact reproduction of the Lord God so that all that God is, Jesus is as well. All that God was and is and ever will be, Jesus was, is, and ever will be. He's the image of God. Secondly, he's the firstborn of every creature. We made clear that Jesus is not part of the creation. He's not a created being, but rather he is the creator. He's firstborn in the sense of priority over creation and sovereignty over creation. He is the Lord of creation. The third thing we saw was that he is the creator. And while Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all involved in the creation of the world, the principal actor in creation, according to Colossians chapter 1 and other New Testament passages, the principal agent of creation was the Lord Jesus Christ. It says he made all things. Remember we said that means the whole universe of things were made by him. And you remember some of those facts we talked about, how big the sun is and all of those things? Jesus Christ made all of that. He's the creator. And when we finished last time, we had just begun this fourth point that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The point we made is that Jesus is not a member of the body like we believers are members of the body. He is rather the head of the body, which means he has authority over the entire body. That it is Jesus who determines what we're to believe, what we are to do, and how we are to accomplish the will of God as his church in the world. And so that's where we started last week, and we're going to continue on our study of Christ as head of the church but we're going to bow for prayer and ask God to speak to us now. Our God and Father, I just come to you today, Lord, because I am very aware that you are the one that must minister to our hearts today. 
It is your spirit who is our teacher. We have the unction of the spirit that teaches us, Lord, your truth. The spirit of God will reveal this information to our hearts so that it's more than just intellectual. It becomes practical and personal for our lives. Lord, we're going to talk today about the fact that Jesus is head of the church, that he's in charge. And if we really take that to heart, that means that he's in charge of each of us. He's in charge of me. And Father, I need to be submissive to your will in all things and to the Lord Jesus, who is the head of this body, the church. And so, Lord, I pray that it will become very practical to us today, that we will be drawn into a deeper understanding of who you are, the part that you play in our lives, and how we can be involved in accomplishing your will in the world. Bless, Lord, this time in the Word, and we'll thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last week, we made this point as we concluded our message, that Christ being the head of the church, and the church is not an organization. An organization operates on the basis of rules and regulations. But an organism is a living being. It is the people. The church is not this building. The church is not East Wilton Union Church. The church, according to the scripture, is the body of Christ that is made up of every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 until the moment of the rapture of the church. Every person that is saved during that period of time is part of the body of Christ. And we who are alive today are the physical manifestation of that body as we as believers gather together in this church. And that's why if you and I gather out on the front lawn, it's still the church. If we meet at a rented hall down the street, it's still the church because the church is the people. The church is not the place where we worship. And so that's kind of where we left off last week. He is, verse 18 says, the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now we're going to look at those phrases. Who is the beginning? What does that mean? That he's the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? That in all things he may have preeminence. That's what we want to study together this morning. Now Christ is the beginning. The Greek word there, arche, speaks of origin. That Jesus Christ is the originator of the church. Remember we looked at the verse in Matthew 16, 18 last week. Jesus said, who's going to build his church? Christ said, I am, right? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen. Christ is the source of the church. Without Christ, there is no church. Without Christ, there is no no body. Now, folks, I want to suggest to you that if you lose your head, your body's in trouble. Right? Without your head, you're in trouble. Jesus Christ is the head. He's the source, but he's also the primacy. Now, what does that mean? The church has its origins in Jesus. Were it not for the cross, were it not for his death, were it not for his resurrection from the dead, there could be no church today. But as the head of the body, Jesus holds the chief position within the church. Listen, the pastor is not the head of the church, even though some of them think they are. 
We're not the head of the church. In fact, in God's kingdom, the greatest are what? The least. They are the servant. They're the slave. A pastor, while he holds a position to which he has been called by God, has been called to be a servant of Christ and a servant of the church. But Jesus Christ is the head of the body. He holds the chief position. That's why when we ever want to know and do the will of God, we go to Jesus and we ask for direction. That is why, and we have talked a lot about the importance of prayer lately, that is the reason, brethren, that we pray. We don't pray to fulfill a ritual. We pray to communicate with the head of the church so that we might know what to do in the will of God. He holds the chief position, the highest rank in the church as head. Now, it goes on to say that Christ is the firstborn from the dead, giving life to the church, the firstborn from the dead. Now, you remember last week when I was talking about this word, prototokos? And I said prototokos means in creation that Jesus Christ is not a created being. It doesn't mean he was created first. I mentioned some groups that taught that God created Jesus, then he gave Jesus the power to create the rest. And that's not the case. Jesus is not a created being. He is eternal God. But now the word firstborn is the exact same Greek word, and it has to do with Jesus Christ as having priority amongst those who have risen from the dead. The Bible says who was raised first. It was Jesus Christ. And after Jesus, all of those will be raised that are connected to his coming. And then there is a final resurrection of the unbelieving dead at the end of time, the great white throne judgment. There is an order to resurrection. Jesus was raised first because he lives, we will live also. He's coming to raise the church up. And if you die in Christ... You'll get a new body and be raised from the dead and your soul and your body will be reunited again. Jesus brings your soul from heaven and reunites it with your body and that takes place at the rapture of the church. And of course, we're all looking for the Lord to come while we're still alive, amen? We, you don't mind not dying, right? Is that okay? It'd be all right to just be transformed and caught away. That'd be all right, wouldn't it? But then there will be a final resurrection of all the unsaved at the end of time. And the Bible says that their names will not be found written in the Lamb's book of life and they will be cast into the lake of fire forever. So these are sobering things, but Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. In other words, because he came forth to life, there is life for you and for me, praise the Lord. Are you looking forward to that day when you will see the Lord Jesus face to face? 1 Corinthians 15, this is, this is a powerful passage. About the only time I've ever heard it preached was on Easter Sunday. <laughs> but oh folks, this is, a, this is a doctrinal truth that carries us every day of the Christian life. Notice it says, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. In other words, if, if there is no resurrection from the dead, Jesus isn't raised either. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Listen, if Jesus is still dead, you and I have no purpose to our faith. Because we've got faith in someone that's dead if Jesus is not raised. 
He says, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Listen, without the resurrection of Christ, there is no salvation. We would still be carrying all of our sins today. Then they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. So everyone that's died with faith in Jesus, if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, guess what? They're not going to rise from the dead either. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Listen, if you believe this all of your life and at the end of it all, it wasn't even true. Now there are a lot of people who come at us, right, and say, well, how do you know it's going to happen? Well, our faith is in the Word of God. What God says. I know it's going to happen because God says it, not because I feel it. Because God said it. And our God cannot lie. Impossible. So he says, if we only have hope in this life, we're of all people most miserable. Why? Because at the end, everything we've hoped for will never come to pass if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But now notice what he says. But now is Christ risen from the dead. There's the declaration. He is alive from the dead, folks. And he has become the what? What's the first fruit? You remember that Israel in the Old Testament would bring their first fruits to the Lord. What was that? That were the first things that they reaped in the harvest. And they would bring the first of it to the Lord. And you know, many preach that when you get your check, the first thing you ought to do is write out the check for the Lord. Give him what he ought to get, and then you get the rest to be able to divide amongst the rest of things. But give him the first fruits. But Christ rising from the dead first, he's the first fruits of them that slept. In other words, because he rose, we who die in Christ, we will be raised also. And that is something that ought to fill our hearts with great, great joy today. The last thing about him being the head of the church is that he is preeminent in the church. Notice it says that in all things, he might be preeminent. Jesus Christ needs to be preeminent when you and I gather to worship. Jesus Christ ought to be preeminent in every business meeting that we have in this church. Jesus Christ needs to be preeminent in all of our service to the Lord, whether within the church or outside in the community. But Jesus needs to be the center of everything. Why? He is the head and we are not. We need to recognize who we are, and where we fit in in the program of God. And it's not on an even level with God. We are below Him. We are His servants. We are His slaves. And so we give Him the preeminence in all things. Philippians 2, 8 to 11, a very familiar passage. It says of Jesus, And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And we know that, right? Jesus, the eternal word, was incarnated in this world. He came in a human body. He came in the form of man. He humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. He went all the way to the cross for you and for me. Now he says what? What's the next word? Therefore. Therefore should make you ask the question, what's it there for? 
Therefore, in the light of the fact that he came as a servant and was obedient unto death, in the light of that, God also has highly what? Exalted him. There was that moment, 50 days after the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, when Christ, now having risen from the dead, ascended from this world to the right hand of the Father, there the Lord Jesus has been highly exalted. He's been given a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, all of the angels and all of the saints that are already in heaven, those on the earth, not only the church, but I want to tell you something. When Jesus comes, the whole world will have to bow the knee. And then it says also under the earth. And he's talking there about hell. And he says even in hell they will have to bow and acknowledge his lordship. And why do they do it? All of it is to the what? Glory of God the Father. That is why we exist, folks. For the glory of God. And so we need to proclaim his preeminence. Christ is all things to the church. He is the origin of the church. He's the sustainer of the church. He's the one who's coming for the church. Jesus Christ is all things to the church. Everything we need, folks. Jesus is all you need. Don't get too excited now. Jesus is all you need, folks. Christ is all things to the church. Why? That he might be preeminent in all things in the church. Nothing, listen, nothing comes ahead of Christ in the church. Because he is the head. All right, we're going to move on from that major point of the headship of Christ over the body. And we want to move on to the fifth point, that Christ is the fullness of God. Notice in verse 19 it says, For it pleased the Father that in Him, that is, in Christ, all the fullness should dwell. No, it says it pleased the Father. Literally, it means God thought that it was a good thing. It well pleased God that what? In Christ, all the fullness should dwell. Now we need to understand what is the fullness. I mean, that's that's if he's full of the fullness, what is the fullness? Now this particular word is in the passive, not the active, but the passive form in the Greek. And in that sense, the fullness is that with which a thing is filled, not the one who is filling it. Do you get the point? It's what you are filled with not the one who is filling you. Now what was Christ filled with? He was filled with the sum total of the divine powers and attributes. In other words, everything that God was and is, Jesus was and is too while he was here on this earth. He did not exercise all of his attributes, 
all the time. In fact, there were many times Jesus, when he was hungry, he could have turned a stone into bread if he wanted to, but he didn't. Do you want to know why? Because he was told by the Father to depend upon the Father, not upon his ability to do miracles. So he had the power, right? We know that he took and multiplied two loaves and five fishes, right? We know he did that and fed thousands of people. But did he just run around doing that every day? No. In fact, he only twice did a miracle like that, one for 5,000, one for 4,000, plus women and children in each case. But you know what? He never, ever created food for just he and the disciples. Isn't that interesting? Because he came to do the Father's will, not his own will. The truth is, I already have planned my lunch today. It's sitting right in my fridge. Just got to heat her up. Because I planned on that, see? That's something. You know what Jesus did every day? He just waited on God to provide. Just waited on God. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have food in the fridge. I hope some of you know what you're going to have for lunch, too. I said that last week, you know. God knows what we're going to have for lunch, even if we don't have it planned out yet. God already knows. But here's my point. Jesus had the total sum of divine powers and attributes. Everything that God is, Jesus is. So it's what he was filled with, not who he was filled by. We know that God permitted all of those attributes and powers to be in the physical body of Jesus while he was here on the earth. But the focus is on what he was filled with, which is all deity. And it says that it pleased the Father that in him the fullness should what? Dwell. And the word literally means to be at home permanently. Jesus didn't give up anything. You know, there are those that teach that the Christ Spirit came on Jesus at the baptism and that the Christ Spirit left him just before he died on the cross. I got news for you. Jesus Christ was fully God when he came into this world. He was fully God through his whole life. He was fully God all the way through death to the resurrection, to the ascension, and he's still fully God today. And it dwells how long? permanently, and the deity is at home in Jesus. It's comfortable. But note the result that comes to you and to me through our union with Christ. The very next verse, well, in chapter 2, in verse 10, it says, and you are what? You are complete in Him. <laughs> He's complete as God, and then we're connected to him now, and we are complete in him. Jesus has everything you and I need. That's why when we have trouble, or when we're having a problem, or when we have a need, who do we turn to? We turn to Christ. Because he is the one that makes us complete. Because he's the head of all principality and power. Now, the next thing I want us to see is that he is the reconciler of sins to God. Sinners to God. The reconciler of sins to God. Now I want to read the passage for you now. And you may have noticed we didn't do a scripture reading earlier in the service. And the reason we didn't is because we're now recording the messages. And if we do it earlier, the passage never gets read on the video. 
So I'm going to be reading the scripture reading as a part of the message so that those are listening will have access to the whole passage, all right? So that's why I'm doing that, just in case you wondered. Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 and to 22. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. Now, by him means by Christ, he reconciles all things to himself, that is, God the Father, by him, that is Christ, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Folks, I'm not exaggerating to tell you that I could preach five sermons on those three verses right there. I'm serious. If I went into all the scriptures that talk about all the things that are in those few verses, I could go on literally for hours. Not because I'm some great preacher. It's because the Word of God has so much to say about this. Now, I want you to notice several things. The word reconciliation is one of five key words used in the New Testament to describe the richness of salvation in Christ. Reconciliation is just one of those words. The other four are justification, redemption, forgiveness, and adoption. Say, now what are those all about? I'm glad you asked me that question. Let's talk briefly about them. Number one... In justification, the sinner stands before God guilty and condemned. But through faith in Christ, that sinner is declared righteous by God. I want you to think about this for a minute. Think about all the sins you've committed in your life. That'd be quite a list, wouldn't it? Think of the books that could be written just about the bad things you thought, said, and done. All of us, right? And when you stand before God in your sin, that's why people must be condemned and go to hell. Because when you stand before Him with all of your sin, God has no choice as a holy God but to judge you. But Jesus came into the world to die on the cross to take our sins into His body and to pay the price for them. So God looks at you and me today and He says, Your sins are gone. I declare you righteous through my Son. That's why we'll go to heaven. It's not because we've been good. Not because we kept the Ten Commandments, because we haven't. We haven't been good either. The Bible says there is no one that is good. Not even one. We will get to heaven because we've been declared righteous by Almighty God Himself. Secondly, redemption. In redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave of sin. But he is granted freedom through the blood of the cross. Jesus has set us free from not only the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. Sin does not have to dominate your life and mine today. And one day we're going to be delivered from the presence of sin and glory. Redemption is you've been, you've been bought by God and you've been set free. You were a slave and now you're free. Free as a servant of righteousness. 
And that word is slave, by the way, as well. In forgiveness, the sinner stands before God as a debtor. But the debt is paid by Christ and therefore forgotten or canceled. <laughs> Folks, listen, get, get it through your head. You need to do this. This is very important. When you stand before the Lord someday, and you will, if you're a Christian, you're going to stand before the Lord someday to give an account of your life. Listen to me. Listen careful. He will never bring up your sin. Because he took it away. It's gone. You have been forgiven. The word means it's been erased. So in forgiveness, folks, we were debtors, but Jesus paid the debt for us. And so now we have no debt with God. In reconciliation, this is what we're studying today, the sinner stands before God as an enemy, but becomes the friend of God. <laughs> It's a change of relationship because a mediator comes in between, removes the barrier between the two, and brings them together in one. That's what Jesus did for us in reconciliation. And in adoption, the sinner stands before God as a stranger, but is made a son with full rights and inheritance. Isn't that amazing? After all you and I have done, and we're going to stand alongside Jesus one day as joint heirs with him. Glory. Now, we need to back up and talk about reconciliation in detail. You thought that was it, didn't you? Sorry. Got a lot of things to say. The fullness of the Godhead constituted Christ equal to the task of reconciliation as God he could do it now listen this is very very important no other human being who is sinful can come between you and God and fix the problem that's why we don't go to pastors for salvation we don't go to priests for salvation we go to Jesus Christ And Jesus is equal to the task because he's not a human being just like you and I. He is a human being. He had that physical body. He had that human nature. But he didn't have a sinful nature, and so he never sinned. And as the perfect man, he became the sacrifice. And God says, because you're perfect, you can stand between me, the perfect God, and sinful man, and you can broker a peace deal between us. Colossians 1.19, and it pleased the Father that him should what? All fullness dwell. That fullness qualified him for the task of reconciliation. Reconciliation was accomplished by Christ's act of making peace. Again, this verse says, and by him to what? Reconcile. That's bringing two things together. To God. By him were the things on earth, the things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. We really need to think about that phrase. What does it mean to make peace? The Greek word literally means to bind together. To bind together. Christ, by his death on the cross, brought together a holy God and a sinful man into a binding relationship through Jesus Christ.
The only reason you can relate to God the Father today is because Jesus Christ stands in between as the one mediator that exists between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator, and it is the Lord Jesus and him alone. Now, why was peace necessary? Well, peace was necessary because we were sinners. We were rebellious. The Bible says we were enemies of God. But notice this verse, Nahum 1-2. It says, God, referring to God, takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Anyone want to be on the other end of God's wrath? But he says we were enemies. In Jeremiah 10.10 it says, At his wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. (laughs) Wow. I tell you what, we need peace to be made between us and God. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 God has not destined us for wrath. Is that good news? He has not destined us for wrath. Listen, God had the matter settled before the foundations of the world when he elected you to salvation and he said, they will never come to my wrath. God has not destined us for wrath. What has he destined us for? For obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that from the moment you were conceived in the womb of your mother, God says, it's just Biden time. I can't wait. That day, he's going to ask Jesus, or she's going to ask Jesus into their life. Woohoo! I think God's excited. That's why the Bible says that there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that what? That repents. You want to put a smile on the face of God? You want to get God excited? You want to see the angels jumping up and down? Oh, friends, see somebody come to know Jesus. Good news. No wrath for you and I. By the way, that's also one of the main arguments, I believe, this passage as to why the church doesn't go through the tribulation. The tribulation is the time of the wrath of God, and he has not destined us for wrath. Come on. Here we go. Now, the word reconcile means to change from one condition to another so as to remove all enmity and leave no impediment to unity and peace. In other words, it comes in between, removes everything that is a problem between the two, and brings the two together. The compound word, catalasso, with a preposition added to intensify the meaning makes this word mean thoroughly, completely, and totally reconciled. Do you understand today, folks? There is nothing, nothing between you and God. It's gone. Now, when we sin, there's no question, that interferes with our fellowship with God. But nothing can come between you and your relationship with God. You know, there's a difference between fellowship with God and relationship with God. One is being a son, and the other one is being a son in good fellowship. I I suppose some of your dads, when you were growing up, said, I can't wait till you grow up and have kids. 
And I hope they're just like you. And what he was trying to say was, I was a bad kid, you know, and I, he wanted me to suffer a little like I made him suffer. You know, there were times when I was not in fellowship with my daddy, but there was never one time my dad said, you're not my son. And God will never look at you as a Christian and say, you're not my son or my daughter. He'll never do it. Because you've been reconciled. It's New Testament usage speaks of a change of relationship. We were enemies of God and now we're what? We're friends. We were strangers on the earth and now we're children. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 11, this, this particular word only appears four times in the New Testament. The one is in Colossians that I just read. In 1 Corinthians 7, 11, it refers to a woman being reconciled to her husband. What that suggests is the woman and the husband had problems and they had to get rid of the problem so they came back together again. It changed the relationship. It brought them back together. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 and 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20, the word reconcile always speaks of reconciliation between God and mankind. And specifically, reconciliation with those that trust Christ as Savior. God has made reconciliation for the whole world, but if you reject Jesus Christ, you don't become a recipient and participant in that reconciliation. But when you trust Jesus, you are reconciled to God forever. Our reconciliation with God requires a mediator. What does a mediator do? He comes in between two opposing sides. He removes the barrier that stands between them and brings them together in peace. And that is exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. How did he do it? Christ's blood satisfied the just demands of a holy God and the just demands of his holy law, making reconciliation possible, meeting all of God's requirements. So God says, you're a sinner and I'm a holy God. Sin has to be dealt with. I have a holy law that is a perfect, holy, and just law. And you have broken my law. We can't stop breaking the law because we're human beings. We seek to not break the law, but we can't perfectly keep the law. And so what does the Lord do? The Lord says, I have removed all of your failures. Every time you broke my law, I took care of it at the cross. When Jesus died, he died even for what you have not done yet. And he satisfied God's wrath. I have said this to you before. This is, I, I emphasize it again and again, brethren, because I lived so much of my Christian life thinking that to some degree I still, because I'd fail, because I didn't do this right or that right, I'd still think somehow I was under God's wrath, that he was mad at me, he was angry. I got news for you. Your God is not angry with you today. He was angry against your sin, and God satisfied his anger at the cross. Now, he says in this passage that this was our condition before. We were alienated. It means to cut oneself off from someone, to be estranged. And the word carries the idea of a permanent condition. Listen, we are born into this world sinners, separated from God, estranged from God. And unless we trust Christ as our Savior, we will remain alienated from God forever. But when we get saved, he brings us into relationship with him. 
Not only alienated, but he says we're enemies. And that word enemies in Greek has to do with hostility. It has to do with hatefulness. Understand this. The world without Christ hates God. The word without Christ hates Jesus. The word without Christ, the world without Christ hates the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God is not only perfect on the one side, he makes demands of us. And they don't want to answer to God. And I believe that that's why evolution has become a theory that has become so popular and the vast majority of the world embraces it. Why? If there is no God, if there is no creator, if everything happened just by chance, we've got no one to answer to. Boy, the world likes that. I don't want to have to answer to God. But God says, no, 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 I am the creator and you will stand before me one day. You'll either stand before me at the judgment seat of Christ to receive reward or you'll stand before me at the great white throne judgment and you'll be cast into the lake of fire forever. Enemies of God. And he said they were enemies, he says, in your minds, literally in your imagination. Sinners distort, I'm sorry, sinners distorted imagination rule their thought processes. Why did people begin worshiping the, create, the creation instead of the creator? It's because their minds were distorted in their imaginations and suddenly the sun became a god and the moon became a god and the stars became gods. This is our condition. We were cut off from God. We were hostile, hateful, enemies of God. We had an imagination that was distorted by sin. And it manifested itself in wicked works. <laughs> in the sphere of works that were pernicious, literally is the phrase in the Greek. In the sphere of works that were pernicious. And I put what pernicious means there just in case you're like me and didn't know. Pernicious means evil, insidious, malicious, hurtful. He said, listen, your works, that's what they're like in the eyes of God. What does the Bible say in John 3? Men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were just and perfect. Is that what it says? No, for their deeds were what? They were evil. They were pernicious. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to it. Listen, folks, why do you think most crime goes on during the night? Because people are hiding in the dark. It's so funny, when I was a teenager, and I've shared this with you before, I got sent to parties by my parents. Because they were afraid, because I was a Christian, I was going to be so weird and so you know, strange from the world that people would think I was a kook. So they wanted me to go to the parties with my friends and they even knew the kids would be drinking and there'd be drugs and all that. And they didn't want, dad, my, my, my dad used to look at me and say, if I ever catch you drinking, I'll knock you into the second Tuesday of next week. That's what he'd say to me, the second Tuesday. I don't think there's two Tuesdays, but he, 
in other words, I'm going to keep, he's going to hit me so hard, I'm going to keep flying, and I'll go right past Tuesday and think another one's coming. He never, my parents never wanted me to drink. They didn't want me to do drugs. But they wanted me to connect with kids that were my age so I wouldn't be weird in the world. God says that you and I are to be totally different from the world. But we'd get to the parties, and then they'd split up into couples. And I can remember going to Rick's house one night where we had a party. And they had one of those rooms downstairs, a great big room, and there was one light in the middle of the room. So every corner was just as dark as it could be. And boy, them old couples, once we got there, they started headed for the corners. What do you think they were going into the corner to do? Play cards. But do you understand what I'm saying? When you want to do evil, you look for the dark. Men love darkness rather than light. And why do they go to the dark rather than the light? Lest his deeds should be exposed. That's why the Bible says you and I as Christians need to walk where? We need to walk in the light. God wants to expose our evil so we will repent of it and change. The problem of sinners is not ignorance. The problem of sinners is willful love of sin. What was in their deceitful hearts revealed itself in evil conduct. Proverbs 23.7 says, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You want to know why you do some of the things that you do? It's because of what you're thinking in your heart. Real quick, the how of reconciliation in the body of his flesh through death. Jesus had to die and carry our sins in his body and rise again from the dead. He had to do that. Without that, you and I could never be reconciled to God. Romans 8.3 says that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. And by doing so, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus had to die as a sacrifice and he had to die as our substitute. The purpose of God's reconciliation and I'm going to stop here because there is so much, so much wonderful stuff. Listen, if, if, if you can't, when I preach this next Sunday, if Jesus tarries, if you can't shout and rejoice over this, I don't know. We got to get something and stab you somewhere in the bottom end or something. I don't know. Wake you up. Because I want to tell you, listen, listen, this is why he reconciles us. So that someday he will present us what? Holy? Are you holy? Not in your practice, but he's someday going to present you holy. Without sin. And blameless. Do you ever have anyone point the finger of accusation against you? When you get to heaven, no one will be able to point a finger of accusation against you. And he wants us to be above reproach in his sight. You know what that means? That means no wrinkles. No wrinkles. In other words, when you're seen, you're going to be seen in absolute perfection. You'll be above reproach. 
I remember as a kid, I, I, I don't know if any of you, sorry about this illustration, but it, did, did any of you have trouble with acne? Oh, boys especially have, well, girls can too, but boys, boys can, especially when they get to those early teen years, they can, man, they break out all over those poor fellows. And I can remember how terrible I felt when I'd wake up. Be one thing if I hit them someplace else, but, you know, have a great big one come on my cheek or on the end of my... Have you ever had them come right on the end of your nose? Man. Folks, no pimples in heaven. And I mean spiritually speaking. Isn't, isn't that great? I got a lot to say about this. I do, so I'm going to leave this. This was the last little teeny bit, but it's already like 2 after 12, and I know that the pumpkin will turn into a whatever, you know, if I don't get us out of here quick. All right? Folks, isn't it glorious that we have a reconciler with God? Amen. Our Lord Jesus, how lovely, how lovely he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God and for what you have shown us from the Holy Scriptures today. Lord, we're so thankful that Christ is the head of the church. That he's the beginning. He's the originator of the church. It exists because of him. That he's the firstborn from the dead, which means he rose first. And because he lives, we will live also. That Jesus is preeminent in the church. That he's the head. That he's the one that everything should be about. The Lord Jesus. And when we glorify the Lord Jesus, we are glorifying the Father and we're glorifying the Spirit. And he's the reconciler. Comes in between us and a holy God. We sinful beings who deserve hell forever. And he removes the barrier of sin. <laughs> takes it out of the way. Declares us righteous. Forgives all our sins. Adopts us into the family. And we are reconciled with God. Oh Lord, how much more could we possibly hope for? Thank you Lord for your word today. Bless it to our hearts, and we'll be careful to praise you for Jesus' sake. Amen. And this has been the Ewok Podcast with Pastor Robbie Locke. We hope it's been challenging and exuberating and uplifting in your life as it has mine. We hope it helps you walk closer with God and understand Him better and the truth He's laid out for us in His Word. If you've really enjoyed this sermon or it's had a great impact upon your life, leave us an email or go to our Facebook page or our website and just leave a comment that we might know exactly how it's impacted you. It's very uplifting for us to see those things, for it helps us to push forward to continue doing these. Well, that's all I got for time. Until next week, God bless.